it is. We have come to the end of Job. I hope that this study has been uh, beneficial to you. I hope it has been encouraging. I had warned so much in the beginning of this study that I I thought the answers that were provided in Job uh, would be challenging because the things that that God explains there are often not the uh, cliche Christian answers of how we want to explain suffering. And yet uh, I believe the God's answer is really full of comfort and I, and I hope it has been an encouragement to you and it has been faith building to you. And if, if nothing else, that you have a greater awareness of the book besides the three chapters that we usually know so well that uh, we have a much greater awareness of what God was doing as he moved through, through that story. Uh, I want to take just a step back before we then look at the final text of Job 42 tonight, because you have this epilogue from, from verse 7 to, chap, to verse 17 of chapter 42, and to appreciate that epilogue, you really kind of have to just remember now everywhere we've been as, we, as we've moved through this study. If you remember in those first two chapters, we saw that uh, Job was put into a trial as Satan had asserted to God that God was not just in how he blesses people. That was really the big crux of the problem is that Satan asserted the reason people serve God is for what they get out of it. It is for selfish reasons. If you take away everything Job has, he will curse you to your face, thus proving that people are basically mercenaries for God and only serve for what they get out of it, not for who he is and not for how glorious he is. And so this becomes the basis of the trial that Job must go through. After losing his children, after losing his wealth, after losing his health, Job does not curse God as Satan said that he would. Job feels though that he has lost his relationship with God and maintained his righteousness uh, even after all that he had lost. His three friends then arrive coming to, quote, comfort him and uh, give explanations for why these things have happened. And what we saw with those three friends is basically a repeated refrain that Job needed to repent. If he would only repent, then all of the blessings would return, which we've noted many times that if Job were to essentially give into that would have proved Satan correct, that uh, Job's just in it to have the goodies and to have the blessings, and that's all he's concerned about. But Job shows that that's not what he's concerned about. He is concerned about justice and righteousness, maintains his integrity all throughout. Job's stance then basically is that God has not treated him fairly, that this is not just. He is a righteous person and should not be treated this way. The three friends in Job go round and round to which there is no conclusion for them. They end in a stalemate. Elihu comes in, who we did not know was there through this whole scene, and steps in and also then gives explanation about what is going on and understandings about how God runs the world. And as he is giving that answer, then God finally appears on the whirlwind. And then God doesn't really give an answer about how he runs the world, but explains his power and his wisdom. And that that is the thing to be trusted as God is running the world. And who are we to challenge or question 
the power of God or the wisdom of of God in the slightest. Which brought then the final words of Job in chapter 42 and verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And now this epilogue sits here and... The big, I think, question you have after all of these discussions have gone on, and you notice we're out of that poetry section. Finally, the text goes back to normal writing and normal paragraphing. And so we've left that poetry and we're back to prose. Is okay, so what is the takeaway? What are we supposed to get from all of this now that we have traversed the book? And that's what we'll spend our time doing. And looking at this epilogue, it really does give us a good recap of things that have happened and the final message. Messages that we should gain uh, about the book of Job, about suffering, and about how God runs the world. So let's begin then in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the names of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keza, and the name of the third, Karen, Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his son's sons four generations, And Job died an old man and full of days. All right. A couple of things that break down in in this this finale that's given to us after this great torment that Job has has gone through. The the first scene that that is given to us is in verses 7 through 9. You will notice now the Lord turns his attention to the three friends. All that we've had so far is just the Lord and Job. And speaking to Job, who are you to question me and to say the things that you have said? And so now that Job has repented, God turns his attention to the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And notice in verse 7, just the flat out declaration, you haven't spoken of me what is right. And we need to step back and think about what have they said about God that isn't right? What has been the big point that they have continually made that God now is stepping in and saying what they were teaching in that is absolutely wrong? And that big point is that suffering means you're being punished by God for your sins. 
That's the consistent drum that they beat again and again. The only explanation for your suffering is that you're being punished for your sins. And that's why your children died, because their sins were great, and you're actually getting less than you deserve, and you should just be grateful for what you're going through because you're an awful sinner. This is what God is coming along and teaching us, and I hope will be a major message to help you in life, is that God does not use suffering to repay you for your sins. That's not the message of God. He does not come in and go, I'm going to make your life miserable now and punish you for what you've done. God is very clear here in this verse and saying, what the three friends said was wrong. They made this declaration and he says, that's not right. That's not the way that I operate. And in fact, going so far to say when Job disputes that with the three friends, he's given that, I think, accolade here and saying at the end of verse 7, that the friends have not spoken was right as my servant Job has. And we've observed that many times that Job has gone in and said, hey, that's not the way I see God operating. That's not what I see going on. That's not the observations that I make. And it's certainly not true in my life. And what we have seen Elihu say, and what we have seen Job say, and what we have seen God say, give us a more well-rounded picture of what suffering is about, is that suffering is allowed by God as a corrective tool, and its purpose is to turn our eyes to God. We, We made the point that it reminds us that this world's not the goal, this world's not our home, this place is not intended to be paradise, and that Elihu comes along and says the reason that there is suffering and that pain is allowed and suffering happens and God allows those things to go on is for our good and it does have a corrective nature but a corrective nature is not the same thing as saying God is going to barbecue you every time you've done something wrong that's very different it's not a direct punishing of you but these things are given to us to correct us and move us in the right direction we've observed many times how the New Testament uses that idea again and again now James says it. Peter says it, Paul says it in Romans 8, 1 Peter 1, James 1. You look at suffering and understand that to be the refining of faith, the molding of our character, the changing of who we are to draw us closer to God, to make us what we ought to be. All of us would like to believe that we would change ourselves during prosperity and good times, but that's not the way it works. It is always through adversity. It is through trials. It is through suffering. And Paul and Peter and James in the New Testament all say that same thing consistently, that these things are given to us to be used by us to refine us. Again, a corrective that God allowed these things so that we would become more and more what God has called us to be and to refine those edges, to strengthen that faith, to change that character, to become what God has called us to be. So it's a, a beautiful picture that what God is giving us is I'm not trying to zap you, which we recognize the scriptures are reflect how often that was a common idea. We, we talked about over in John 9. Here's this man who's been born blind. Well, who sinned? First thing it has, well, somebody sinned, right? God must be punishing. Is he punishing the man or punishing the parents? Who, who sinned here? What, what happened? Jesus answered, it's not how these things operate. That's not what God is doing. And I love that answer, though, to display the glory of God. Again, that is that answer about suffering. This is going to be used in a way so that God would be glorified. And we use suffering that way in our lives. I hope 
that if there is nothing else you've taken away from the things that we've done in the study of Job, that you would allow suffering to function in your life that way, that you wouldn't look at it and say, well, God must be punching me in the mouth because I did something yesterday and he's now zapping me today. That's not what the book of Job sets up. The friends set forward that theology and God has knocked that down very strongly and said, that's not what I'm doing, that these things are intended to help us, to correct us, to move us in the right way, not to strike us down, not to bury us into the ground. That's not God's goal. I think it is also interesting here in looking at these 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 pictures of of what the friends are supposed to do. Uh, how interesting it is that they have said of Job, you are a terrible, awful sinner. I mean, you're the worst of the worst. You trampled the poor. You reject the widows. I mean, the the listing of the things that these three friends have charged this man with doing is absolutely staggering, especially in light of all that he has lost. And now you will notice what God says that these three friends must do is they doesn't just simply say, now you three friends need to pray to me and repent and get, get together. No, you will notice that God sets up Job as a priest of sorts. And now they must find intercession through Job to God. You bring your offerings and Job will pray for you to me and I will hear Job. And so Job is set up in this priest kind of figure, which is interesting because remember the book started that way. What is Job doing always after his his children are in the home? But he would now offer sacrifices on their behalf just in case they had done something amiss. And so you see that picture coming back again now in chapter 42 where he's functioning as this interceding high priest kind of concept. Especially strong would be the words in verses 7 and 8. You might have noticed a repetition. Four times God says... My servant in speaking of Job, that's my servant, that's my servant, that's my servant, that's my servant, which is unavoidable implication of vindication of Job before these friends. You know, here they are saying, you're a miserable wretch and God is punishing you for everything you're doing. And now God finally addresses the three men and says, actually, that's my servant Job and I'll call him my servant four times. And if you want to have any relationship with me in any restoration whatsoever, you bring you better bring your sacrifices to him and he'll pray for you. Oh, what a reversal. Uh, who is the one who has been shown to be righteous is not the three friends, but Job in the midst of all that he has gone through. A beautiful picture here of who Job is and this relationship that Job is able to have with God. You recall that Job had thought, well, my relationship with God is destroyed. He's abandoned me. He's far away from me. And God is, has shown that's not the case. We knew that because of the first two chapters of the book. But now it's even spoken directly here that that's not the case at all. Job has a great relationship with God that God had not left him at all and now is able to stand before God and and pray on behalf of these three friends. As you read that, you can't help but see that the, the end of the book gives us a great typological picture of Christ. It is extraordinary here because what you have happening is 
the friends have counted Job as a transgressor and as if the wrath of God is upon him. He's being punished for his sins. He's somebody that is rejected by God and is clearly then outside of the favor of God. And yet, what does God say? No, he's my servant and you must come to him if you want to have the forgiveness of your sins. It's a fascinating end of how Job comes around and gives us a wonderful picture of what this high priest image is going to do is that the people will all go, no, no, he must be discarded by God and rejected by God and experiencing the wrath of God and is being punished by God. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 was predicting, that the people would not esteem him, but that they would consider him stricken by God. But in fact, he's the servant of God, as Isaiah called him over and over again. This is the servant of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. So a picture of what the priesthood would look like. And so it's a great image of what would be coming in the future as Job gets to use this opportunity bestowed upon him by God to act as an intercessor on behalf of these three friends. Which, before we leave verses 7 through 9, how how can you not just appreciate for the moment the, the beauty of the forgiveness that's seen in this in these three verses. I mean, it's it's just we have heard Job say some things that I know we all you know we all got a little uncomfortable. Wow, I mean Job, and said such things that Job, that God even came in and go, who do you think you are to say that about me and and to suggest that I am in the wrong so that you can be right, and yet. Notice that chapter 42, verse 6, what does Job do? I repent in, 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 in dust and ashes. I, I, I repent of the things that I, I, I've said. And notice what that does. God restores him to my servant. We see repentance and immediately Job is back in a, a wonderful condition before God because he repents before him. Consider the three friends. They're in the same thing. They have said some awful things about Job. They've outright lied about Job and said things that are wrong about God, as God himself says. They've said things that are wrong about me. And yet God says, if you will have an intercessor come before me, I'll accept that prayer and we'll be restored too. Just the the beauty of forgiveness of here's this picture uh, of God who restores when we repent. It's it's fascinating that nobody in these these friends, these three friends in Job, they haven't been perfect. And yet at the end of of this, this whole event, they're able to stand before God whole that God receives them. Because they repent, because they they give themselves back to God. The beauty of forgiveness, may we we never take that for granted or or, or be uh, blinded by that to not see how amazing it is after all that we've looked at. That here is God making this offer and restoring Job and restoring the the, the three friends. The finale then uh, gives us a picture then uh, of Job being comforted. And, And we need to talk about what happens to him and then talk about really the theological aspects of that so that we understand this ending really in its proper light and that what we don't do with the text is then undo everything we've learned for the past 42 chapters and make a, a, a misunderstanding at the end. One of the things that you can't help but notice is that in terms of the possessions, everything doubles. Uh, it says there at the end of verse 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. When you read verse 12, you know, all of those numbers are doubled from what we saw in 
chapter 1 in terms of the possessions that he had. Everything that is given to him is all now doubled. You will notice there is also a doubling in terms of lifespan. He now suddenly is going to live 140 years. That's not just an off-the-wall number. We've talked about the stylized numbering when we've studied this book. This is poetry that we have to keep that in mind. And so the average lifespan was considered 70 years. Well, he's going to get 140. And so here you see a, a doubling of that. But then everybody comes, well, wait a minute, but there's not 20 children. If we're going to double everything, where's the 20 children? But don't forget what we saw when we looked at this back in chapter 1, I don't know, 50 years ago. Uh, 10, that was that number of, he had the perfect family, remember? Seven sons, right? And three daughters to get equals 10. And notice what is he given? Seven sons, three daughters, and we're back at 10. So we, we have the number of perfection here, of completeness. We have the, the perfect family that's been, been put back together again. And so you're getting this picture then of, okay, here's the restoration of Job. Here's the blessings of Job. Here's all that is coming to him. And so now in doing all of that, What are we supposed to take away from that? Are we supposed to read this book and go, okay, so at the end of the trial, you're going to be fully restored and everything's going to be all better. If you just hang on to the other side, God will put all the pieces on the checkerboard back into place right where it was before. And now it's all going to be just fine. Anybody who's been through a trial knows that's just simply not true. That's just simply not true. And I think we ought to recognize that's, not what's happening with Job either. You can't begin to suggest that, okay, so I, my 10 children died. If you give me 10 new ones, it's a replacement factor. Now it's just as good as I never had. I got my 10 back, so everything's just fine, right? No, that's not what's happening. We shouldn't see this as, as that kind of thing that what God is saying is, well, if you would just get through it, that's what's going to happen is I will give you physical restoration in this life. And that's not the message that God is communicating here. Nor should we even indicate the message is that if you just remain faithful, God will bless you in this life. And so, you know, you'll have blessings at some point. Uh, that's been the long issue of the book of Job is that's not the case. And that's what what Job points out is, and the writer of Ecclesiastes does too, is that being righteous doesn't mean you're going to be prosperous or successful or that you will have good times or any of those kinds of things. One of the things that God has made very clear and that Elihu also drove a very strong point is God's not under any obligation to Job. God's not under any obligation to Job here. We come to the end of the trial and we get to verse 7. Does God now even have to do anything? No. He could just go, and thus will be the rest of your days. And friends, how many times is that the case where the trial you come into will be the trial that you will have the rest of your days? There's nothing that says that God must come in and put the brakes on it and go, well, there is at some point I will make it stop and it will all be better. And I'll just wave the magic wand and put it all back on the board again. It's all going to be fine. That's not the hope that was given to us in this book. That's not the teaching that was ever given. It was not the message that God was giving. In fact, if we come to the end of the book of Job and we make the point that that's what God does, then Satan is right. So here we are, and we're only in it waiting for God to finally give us goodies in this life. If we just hang on long enough, 
you'll have health and you'll have wealth and you'll have all these things. It's the very thing Satan was arguing why people serve God. The whole purpose of this event has been to show that the true people of God don't serve God for what they get. They serve God for nothing. And they're not in it for, well, God has to give me what I ask for. That he has to restore my wealth or give me the children or give me the health or the animals or any of the things that we're reading about here. That's not God's message at all. The message that I believe is the intent for this ending is a message that the book of 2 Corinthians opens with. And it's the title of the lesson tonight. That God is a God of comfort. And that's ultimately what is happening here. That this is not an obligation on God's part to say, oh, well, because he's faithful, now I have to restore him. That I have to give him these things. That's, that's not it at all. Rather, what we have learned from the book of Job is that God does not have to act out of any obligation of Job's righteousness, right? That's been the whole message. Does God have to do good to Job because Job is righteous? No, that's been the emphatic message of the book. No, God does not. He absolutely does not. God is under no obligation to us. What, I mean, the question is asked again and again, what can we do that God would owe anything to us? And the answer is absolutely nothing. He owes us nothing. So why does God do good? Why does he comfort? Because we are righteous, not in the slightest. But because that is the character and the nature of God. Because that's the kind of God he is. Because he is a God who wants to do that. He is not under obligation to do it. It's not because, oh, well, you've been so faithful. I guess I've got to fork up something. And if you get, you know, certain levels on the ladder wrong, you get more goodies from God as you go. That's not how God's operating. He's under no obligation. But God, from his wisdom and his power, chooses what he will bless, what he will give. And he does it from his own will, and he does it from his own heart. I think that is such a a critical message that we would get from the book of Job. And, And tied very closely to that in is this idea then that God can comfort you after your distress. I think that's one of the hard things in in trial. Is I feel that in suffering and in pain and in trial, it feels hopeless. It feels like there is no good in the future to come. There is no way I can survive this. And there is this message. It's not that God is going to fix your life and make it all better on the other side of the trial. But that doesn't mean that this trial is the end of your life either. That God's still with you. God will still bless you. God still cares for you. And that there can still be blessings to come. And it isn't just undoing everything that happened in your past. But there can be new blessings ahead. And God can give you those things. That it's not the end of your life. 
and it's not the end of all that you've ever known, that there can be a wonderful thing. I, I should tell this, but when I had a meeting in one place and I was doing my series that I'd done here with you guys on, on Joseph and, and the suffering that he'd gone through. And there was this Christian there. I love him to death. He, he, he sat down with me and he had told me about, you know, his wife had, had cheated on him, destroyed his life. I mean, he just, he was a Christian and just, it just tore him apart. Just how horrible and awful it was. And I mean, Christians are trying to help him and he is just in depression and at loss. And how can this be going on and all of that? And what an amazing thing. So by the time I get there, in just a, a couple, of, I mean, this had happened to him like six or seven years ago or so. And um, here he is with this wife and, and, and two boys. And he's talking to me and he's just saying, what you said was so helpful to tell people is that it's not fixed. It's not like it's fixed or erased. But there's a new path to go. And now I have this new life with this new family and I have this relationship with God. And yeah, the hurt's still there and all of that still exists. But here God is walking me now this way. And that's the, the picture we have to have is we wouldn't look at the trial and go, now undo it and put it back to square when it doesn't work that way. But how amazing it could be of what the future can hold of what God is still able to do. And that's what I think is what we are learning here is that God cares for his people and is able to bless through the pain and through the loss. This is what God is trying to communicate is God will bless through that. God can do those things. And and, and it is something that we are able to long for and look for and hope for. And so if I were to like sum up one big, great message, I, I really do hope it would be this then. God's blessings and that God's generosity, those things are tied to his own character and his own prerogative. That we would squarely keep those things in that box. Our faith does not dictate the degree of our suffering or the degree of our prosperity. Job blows that idea to smithereens. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns from evil. Probably the worst suffering you could ever imagine. So your degree of faith does not move the degree of prosperity or the degree of suffering. That's not how we're supposed to measure those things. God's prosperity and God's generosity are only tied to his own prerogative and tied to his own character. Satan had said, God cannot do this. God is not able to bless people because if you bless them, they will serve for selfish reasons. And I hope you will see what God's answer to that is. God's answer is, I can bless my people because it's not tied to their activity. It is tied to my own goodness. That's why I can bless the way that I do. This is not a a pro quo kind of thing. If you do this, I do this. And so as long as you do good today, then I'll give you something today. Oh, you did bad today. Something bad's going to happen. That's not the way God's going to operate. That's not how it works. The picture is God can bless immensely and be extremely generous with his people because that's the very character of who he is. It is his desire to bless us, not that our righteousness demands the blessings of God. Do not look at your life and go, well, because I've been righteous or good or faithful, 
God owes me X, Y, and Z. That's been under scrutiny in this book. That's not the way to look at it. God blesses the righteous because that's what he said he wants to do. That's why he blesses the righteous. I think I can put that in a pretty fair way in terms of just thinking about it as a parent. I'm under no obligation to bless my children and do things for them when they do good. I don't have to. There's no compulsion there that says, if they get good good grades, I must take them out to dinner. Or give them... There's no obligation that says, when their birthday comes, they must have two toys, five toys. There's There's no zero obligation there. Why do I do it? Because they're good? No. Because that comes from my desire to do that. It comes from that. This is not a, if you do this, I will do this. I do that because I'm a parent trying to be a loving parent to do what is right by them. And so I want to encourage good behavior and I do things to reward and do things to to, uh, correct, but not out of some kind of obligation system, but because that comes from my own very character. I believe this is exactly what God is saying. Don't come to me as if this is an obligation sequence. This is my very character and my very heart that I desire to bless and to give and to be generous and to pour these things out. Don't turn around and make it an obligation thing of, well, I did good today, so, so where is it? I tell my kids all the time, that drives me crazy. Just because I reward you for something, don't come to me and go, well, I did good today, where is it? No, 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 that's, not, uh, that's out of my own generosity. This is not an obligation table. I'm going to go, oh, well, since I, you gave me that yesterday, so if I do it again today, I get it again, right? No, no. It's my prerogative. It's my desire to dispense blessings as I see fit. And this is exactly, I believe, how God is operating with us. So that when we choose then to serve God for nothing, God is free to bless us as He chooses. That we aren't trying to put Him on some kind of obligation. We serve Him for nothing. If we got absolutely nothing, we will still serve. This is what Job's words were. Hey, take it all away. All right. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Came into this world with nothing. I'm going to go out with nothing. Let's bow down and worship God. That is our approach to God. We worship for nothing. We serve because of who He is. But in the process, how we enjoy. What a good and gracious, generous, loving God that we serve. And so we enjoy those blessings as they come from God. Let's push that a little bit forward. Verse 11. Really interesting words here. Another thing that has challenged us in this book, and I'm going to put that rock back in your shoe one more time and let you walk on it the rest of your days. But you'll notice it in verse 11. Right in the middle there, it says they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil. That word can also be translated disaster or trouble that the Lord had brought upon him. And I'm going to underline that one more time. I want you to see that God again declares himself ultimately responsible for everything that has happened. It is something that we have struggled with in our Wednesday night class. We have struggled with in the chapter 1 and chapter 2. And here it is again in chapter 42 that God is very clear in saying, I am ultimately responsible for the things that are going on. 
We have to be able to bend the knee to that idea that God says, at the end of the day, the buck does stop with Him. That doesn't mean that Satan isn't the one doing the evil. We're aware of that. Who's the one who's the active participant in this? Satan is. He is doing the evil. But we're recognizing God did allow it. God could have stopped it. He chose not to. God allowed these things. One thing that is to be our great hope and comfort in the midst of suffering and trials and distress and difficulty is that Satan is not running amok. And here's God going, oh no, I can't believe all the things he's doing. I've got to try to fix that as best I can. Everything that Satan does is within the knowledge and the power and the control and the sovereignty of God. God is in control. There is nothing that is outside of his knowledge, nothing that is outside of his realm, outside of his rule, outside of any of those things. That's the great comfort of chapter 1 and chapter 2, is before Satan can do one thing, what's he doing? Lord, I'm going to do this. Lord goes, okay. But not this, he says. Satan comes again, how about this? Lord goes, okay, but not this. God's constantly boundaries upon what Satan can do knowledge of what he is doing awareness of those things and God is pointing that out here he will not let us leave the book without the words being stated right there that the Lord is ultimately responsible for the things that have happened I would encourage you to embrace that idea because by embracing it I believe it gives us a greater faith and a greater strength and a greater anchor Two passages like this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No testing, some translations, temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he is also, we will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. The only way we can believe that text is that God is ultimately in control and responsible for the things that are going on and puts boundaries on them. That's the only way we can accept that truth. Is that ultimately God does rule over evil. He rules over suffering. He rules over Satan. And He decrees the limits of temptations and trials. He says this far and no further. Well, that's what God opened with with Job in chapter 37. I'm the one who says of evil, this far and no further. I'm the one who shakes the dust of the wicked. I'm the one that puts the boundaries on the light and the darkness. I'm the one that accomplishes that. What does that mean for us then? It's the very thing that God taught in two discourses out of every word God said. Here's his message. Trust my power. Trust my knowledge. Trust my wisdom. Trust me. This is what Job is supposed to do. God is in control. And we're to trust him with our very lives. And so whatever we're in the midst of, we're trusting. God knows. God sees. God has limits. God has boundaries. God is an active participant. He's aware. He's not in the dark. And we're trusting in what he is doing. And we are then looking at our suffering and looking at our trial, not as God trying to hurt us or punish us, but how can this be used to refine our faith? How can this use be used to draw us closer to God and to make us more what God has called us to be? I want to end the lesson tonight by you turning over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5.
because James speaks of Job. Job gets a New Testament presence as well. And what James says about Job, I think, is a great final summary of the message of the book of Job. Job chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I find that description fascinating how James puts that description of Job. Let's look at it, what he says. His concept is this, be patient until the Lord returns. That's his big idea. Be patient until the Lord returns. He uses a farmer imagery, be patient, be patient and wait. Wait for the Lord's return and be patient. He uses some examples. His first example then is look at the prophets. We've been able to do that with Jeremiah. Look at their example of suffering and patience. He says, you see them. Look at their faith. Look at their endurance. Look at their steadfastness through suffering, through difficult, and their patience through all those things. And then you'll notice he turns his attention to Job and says, I want you to consider the steadfastness of Job also. Look at his endurance. But then consider the words that were given to us there. And he says there in the middle of verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And now watch what he puts with that. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At the end of the day, when you come to the end of the book of Job, That's what you're supposed to see. You are supposed to see the compassionate, merciful God. You are to see it in a way that when God blesses and is generous and is overflowing, you are seeing the compassion and the mercy of God. When you see Job stumbling in the things that he says, you're still seeing the compassion, the mercy of God. When you see even his suffering, there is the compassion, the mercy of God that God is saying, I am at work. I am fully aware of these things. And one of the great things that I hope we'd walk away from this is that God has a greater purpose when he allows evil and suffering in this world. This is what he's telling Job. I'm I'm aware of what's going on and how God is using these things to accomplish his purposes. Our difficulty is we want God to give us the manual and go, now explain to me how this, 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 and this, and this is accomplishing your purposes. Please tell me. And please consider ultimately that's basically what Job was saying. You need to explain to me Why, I as a righteous person am enduring this. 
And God's answer is, trust me. Put your faith in me and believe in my wisdom, in my knowledge, and in my power. I am a compassionate and merciful God, and I desire to bless my people. And he does so as he sees fit. We must walk away with an awe of God that he truly operates for our good. We just don't always understand how. And we don't have all the information that we would like to have. But friends, if we had all the information, then why would God call us for faith? This is where faith steps in. And we turn our hearts to God and believe that he is acting for our good and that these things will be so that ultimately we will be able to be with him. I have loved this book and I hope you will now love it too. We're going to sing a song and we invite you then to come to a compassionate, merciful, loving God and to see that through suffering and through difficulty, God is even at work through that to accomplish great things. There is no greater picture of that, my friends, than the cross of Jesus Christ. In the suffering of his only son, it brings us hope and brings us life and brings us victory. In a painful experience of a betrayal of one of his closest friends of Judas, this is used for the glory of God so that God's will would be accomplished. And through that death and through that crucifixion, life would come to the world. This is how God operates. This is what God does. And you see it in the lives of so many people in the scriptures, from Joseph all the way down to the apostles and prophets. This is how God operates. Put your faith in him. Won't you come to him tonight and believe in him with all of your heart, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come while we stand?